Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, his entire life, he was obsessed with comedy. So it is no wonder that he himself has had a really successful career as a comedic actor on stage and on screen. Welcome the fabulous Eric Peterson to the podcast. A-OK. And my guest today is Eric Peterson. Eric currently stars as Kevin in the AM series, Kevin Can F Himself, or Kevin Can Fuck Himself. And we're going to get into that really soon to know what the actual title is. He is a veteran of television and the Broadway stage. Peterson's previous TV credits include the TV Land series, Christy, among others. And on stage, he starred in the hit Broadway production and national tour of Shrek the Musical as Shrek. School of Rock as Dewey Finn, the musical Escape to Margaritaville as Brick, and Peter and the Starcatcher. He hails from Chicago, and I am so unbelievably happy to welcome Sir Eric Peterson to the podcast. Hello, sir. Hello. I like that introduction. I, <laughs> I, I need to become British so that I can actually someday become an actual Sir Eric Peterson. A sir, and be knighted, <laughs> yes. and be officially knighted. Absolutely. Um, you know, we got to the title of your show, and not because I'm a prude, but I realize when you when you read the name of your show, it's F asterisk 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 um, himself. And so I wonder... Um, when you sit down every week to do a table read uh-huh. of your show um, and someone reads the title page, uh, episode three of, what do they say? They say it like this. Uh, now we will read episode three of Kevin Can Fuck Himself. We really try to <laughs> lean into that F-bomb as, uh, as hard as we can uh, whenever we are doing you know any kind of press or interviews for the show. We always sort of check as long as we're not on live television. Uh, we try to right. say uh, we drop the big old F-bomb hard and true. Because it's interesting on your, um, on your bio, mm-hmm. uh, it, it also has the asterisk. So yeah. Um, and I usually, I will finding? say, I like if I'm doing like a post or something on Instagram, I usually do the asterisks because I got kids and I, I, you know, even when, when my kids tell like their friends, like, oh, your dad's on a TV show. And they're like, what is it? And they just say, it's uh, the Kevin show. Is That's how they, <laughs> that's how they refer to it. Just because they, just like at home, yeah, they, <laughs> the Kevin show. They, yeah. they know that there's a, a, a spicy word in there. So yeah, but the, I think the intention of the show is that it is called Kevin can fuck himself, and then we sort of uh, adhere to having a little decorum uh, here and there so that people don't feel too uh, put off by the title. But it is a, it's a strong title that really gets you. 
I know. And I'm sort of picturing, I don't know if um, the producers and creators, I know Rashida Jones and Will McCormick, yeah. and I love them and, and your showrunner creator, Valerie. Yeah. I, I wish I had been in the room when they pitched it because I feel like that's the pitch, right? That's like, what else yeah. do you need to know? Do you know what's so cool about how this show sort of came to be is Valerie Armstrong, who is our uh, brilliant, brilliant writer, uh, executive producer, co-showrunner, uh, you know, creator of the show. She basically uh, in 2017, I want to say, um, it was kind of in the middle of uh, the Me Too movement and Time's Up. And also it was a combination of that. And then also she had heard this interview um, with uh, or a podcast with a few female uh, actresses. And they were saying that every year at pilot season, they go in and their agents say, all right, this year, um, listen, this this new sitcom, they need an actually funny female to play one of the moms or whatever and or the wife. And they were always like, OK, but you're sure this is like funny. It's not just setups for the guy. And they're always like, no, no, this right. time they really need an actually funny actress. And then they'd go in and the lines were like, oh, really, honey? Oh, honey, don't do that. And it was there weren't actual jokes, you know, it was just like terrible stuff. And so it was the combination of like that moment and hearing that story. And she was like, yes, why are we not exploring this character of the female wife? And she said she came up with that initial idea that the sitcom wife is in a sitcom scene. She's like being sort of dismissed and made fun of. And she walks into the kitchen with her laundry basket. She slams down the thing. She looks right into the camera and she goes, my husband can go fuck himself. And she was like, boom, that's the show. That's the whole show right there. And it really is such a strong idea. It's a strong concept that shockingly has never been done before, needed to be done. And so we all, every time, you know, she tells us that story, we're like, good on you just to like have the the sort of foresight to see that. And the other thing about Valerie is that up to that point, she really, and I, I don't think that she would mind me saying this, like, this was her first big project. She was a writer's assistant and and in the writer's room for a few other shows, but she was sort of like an, an up and comer. And this pitch, the AMC heard it and they were like, go make the show, go make it. It's awesome. You know, we, we have failed to mention in the first few minutes and shame on me and you, the great Annie Murphy. Oh, yes. Um, who, who, you know, kind of burst onto the scene and became a global sensation in Schitt's Creek yeah. as Alexis and, and really is, uh, just such an incredible actress and comedian. And she obviously was, I imagine, the first to be attached to the project or or am I making that up? Well, uh, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yes, or were you the first to be attached well, to the project? Well, I think they, you know, they had sort of a, a, a an original casting call um, for the show um, okay. that I was a part of that first sort of round of, of casting. Um, and they weren't quite sure. They, they sort of were like, we feel really good about you, but we're not sure about who's going to play Allison yet. So there was a little bit of waiting and then Annie became available and they offered it to her and she was interested. So she was the first, like officially on the line, you know, <laughs> signed to the dotted line. And then yes, we all sort yes. of did, um, those of us who had kind of already done some auditions in, in waiting, um, um, did a chemistry read with her and thank God it all just fit perfectly. And, and then off we Can went. Can you talk about what a chemistry read is yeah. for the, for the few people who yeah. may not so know what that means? So um, basically, 
once they have, sometimes they'll have, you know, a big star already attached and they're bringing in, you know, it could be other, um, they just want to have like a meeting where they can like, because usually when you're doing auditions, obviously you're just reading with a reader or a casting director, but you're not working with other actors. Um, but a chemistry read is where they bring you in. You actually have the other actor that will play the role. Sometimes you're switching. It might be this person, might be that person. So you're doing the scene to actually give the producers and directors a little sense of like, how do these people exist in a space together? Um, and it is, it's a, it's a cool thing, but it, there's a lot of, you know, stress and pressure on it because you want to feel natural and be your natural self, but you're also aware that like, whatever you're naturally bringing to a room is going to affect, you know, if you get this job or not, but thank God, uh, you know, it went well for, for me and, you know, Annie and I really just clicked right off the bat. She's so kind as a human she is i always say she's terribly canadian she is just so like polite and present with you and looks you in the eye and you know so just as a person she's a hundred percent the best um and then as an actress it, it is so fun working with her because obviously her comedic chops are number one you know chef's kiss so good she's so good <laughs> she was so good on you know on Schitt's Creek. And what's great is that she's really getting to show a ton more range on our show. Um, and so I was really happy to be like working with her and creating comedic bits and, and finding these characters together. So yeah, I, I cannot say enough amazing things about Annie Murphy. This is a really big deal. You're in a show with the name Kevin in the title and you're Kevin, yeah. um, which, you know, for someone with, um, a tremendous theater career. Um, I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way. Do you feel like it's happening fast? This transition um, to this other, to do I don't TV? know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I've, I've been super lucky in that I really truly have had a bi-coastal career. Um, I mean, it's been, I will say this, it's been uh, hard on my family, you know, my wife and kids, because we've moved between New York and LA, I think six or seven times as a whole family. So, right. you know, we like, we lived in New York, my wife and I lived in New York for the first eight, eight, nine years of our, you know, relationship. And then we had our daughter whose birthday is today, 11 what? years ago today. Oh my yes, goodness. My Happy daughter. birthday. What's <laughs> yes, her name? Sophia. Um, Happy birthday, Sophia. This episode is dedicated to you, sweet absolutely. friend. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. So 11 years ago today, she was, uh, my daughter was actually born on the Shrek tour. Um, she was born two nights after opening night of that tour. And then we bought a minivan and we drove the entire tour around the country for a year. So the whole first year of her life was on tour. And then that show ended in Los Angeles at the Pantages. And I had always kind of wanted to do LA and do TV. Luckily I had done, I'd done a few episodes of law and order in New York. I did a comedy central pilot that never aired, but like I went through that process. Um, so I had some TV credits when I moved to LA, which was great. Luckily, sort of right off the bat after doing after being here with Shrek, I got a little um, guest spot on Modern Family, which was awesome. I, I feel like while it feels like things are happening fast in that, you know, this show is really taking off and people are excited about it. I do feel like I've I've sort of been building the wall with brick by brick, you know, over the years of do a couple TV things, go do a Broadway show, do a couple more TV things, do another, a bigger Broadway show, a couple more TV things. And it's sort of slowly climbing up the ladder like that. Yes. Yeah. I'm actually fascinated by the fact that you went from 
uh, venue to venue with um, Shrek in a minivan. It's <laughs> not yeah. something I, I love it. It's it like was, a sweet circus family. It, we used to say that all the time. We used to say that we are running off with the circus. And I will say this. I think that my daughter it, she is one of the most, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that's, that are amazing about her. She's kind and talented and loving and sweet and all these things, but mm -hmm. she's a super adaptable person. Like anytime she's in a new place or meeting new people or a new experience, she is so quick to sort of like survey the room, get a read of it and be like, all right, cool, let's go. And most kids are not like that. And I really think that even though she was only a baby when she was on this tour of Shrek, I think that there was something ingrained in her at that young age of like each week being in a new hotel room and seeing yeah. new people around her that sort of just like informed her brain to be like, hey, there's new situations happening all the time and it's going to be OK. I can do this. Yeah, but exactly. you have another kid now, too. I do. I have a son named Miles who is six years old. Okay. Um, and yeah, they're they're just they're the best. And Miles had a cushier LA TV life. He doesn't really yes, know yes, about, yes, yes. about a mini, moved, minivan. He's moved between, yeah, he's moved between New York Limousine, and LA a couple I think times. you mean, right. <laughs> yeah, but he definitely had a more traditional, you know, like born, came home to his own house. But yes. I will say this. Here's a good story about Miles is that when um, when my wife, Lisa, was in labor, we were literally, I'm not exaggerating, we were literally in the hospital room. Her feet were up in stirrups. She was pushing for labor. And I got the call that School of Rock wanted me to come back to audition to replace Alex Brightman uh, to play Dewey. And I was like, but they wanted me to come like the next day. And I was like, babe, I can't, I can't go. Like you're having a baby right now. And she was like, you got to go to this audition. This is big. And I was like, no, no. And she was like, we're literally having this discussion as she's <laughs> pushing. And she booked me a flight while she was in labor. Cause I was like, no, I'm not going to leave. And then I went to New York. So I, I, my son Miles was born and I think I left the next day or maybe the day after that uh, to go audition for school. And you are still married. And we are still married. My wife that is, is a superstar. I don't even 100%. understand. I, I don't understand anything you just said. Was that English? Because you lost me at stirrups. Um, well, his name should be Dewey. Yes, um, I know, right? And that is, God, I feel like I was a little bit annoyed with Dominic that he left the hospital for like a minute to do a voiceover. So the idea... And then came oh, back, me? like literally yeah. was back in an yeah. hour. And I literally wasn't even in labor yet so god bless her but it just kind of speaks to i don't know it really is a family affair there are certain careers that really ask a lot of the people who are in our lives and how lucky you are yeah my is wife uh lisa uh her main name was lisa morabito um and uh she was an actress when we met we met doing summer stock theater at the barn theater in augusta michigan when we were That's both right, right out of college yeah um and started dating and then eventually moved to new york and you know had a family now she sort of has had an awesome career where she was an actress for a while she was in mama mia in las vegas for a couple of years did some other like New York stuff. Uh, and then uh, once we started having kids, she decided to go back to school for preschool education and getting uh, her teacher certification, became a preschool teacher for a little while, 
started a business called Broadway Bouncers, where she was like doing like mommy and me classes, but using Broadway musicals, which was awesome. And now she works for TheaterWorks USA in New York City um, that does children's theater and she does content for them and also curriculum. And she's also writing shows now. So she's sort of made a transition to more in the creative and writing side of it. But what's great is that because she was an actress, you know, she, she knows, you know, certain jobs are just too big to pass. And so, you know, when I say like, Hey, I know we're having our first kid, but can we go on the road together? She's like, yeah, this is your big lead role in like a big musical. Like we're doing this. It's so cool. You know, there's, it's not to say that there's not like challenges and, and hard discussions that had have to be had, but I think having somebody, you know, people always say like, well, should actors marry actors? And like, you know, is it too hard and too much? There is hard things about two people that have an artist spirit in, you know, in a relationship. But I will say have for us, it's always been really positive because knowing what the other side is going through allows us to both sort of like support each other the way that we need to be supported. Yeah, and she actually sounds like a complete Renaissance woman who sort of is able to take this passion and move it into different lanes, depending on what is making sense for her. And I just have so much respect for that. And um, anyway, good on both of you. (laughs) Um, you. How did you, so when we, if we go back for a minute to your origin story, um, were you like singing and dancing in your living room? Were you a theater kid? Were you a child actor? What was your story? (laughs) Well, I was not a child actor by any means. Um, I was definitely a goofball. I was definitely, I was very small kid. Uh, I was, you know, very kind of dorky and geeky. And so I got picked on quite a bit. Um, and I think I always used comedy as a self-defense kind of mechanism. You know, I always felt like if I could make kids laugh before they got to say something to me, then that's, then I had control of the situation. Do you know what I mean? So I, I actually feel like I was perfecting physical comedy bits at a very, very young age. I was learning. I loved watching, you know, three stooges and like all the old, like, you know, vaudevillian stuff. So I was learning how to like kick a door when you walk up to it so it looks like your head got hit and how to fall into a locker and make it you were the star of noises off yes exactly (laughs) totally and I I was ready for that stuff and so I I think that I was always a performer in that sense of it but I didn't think I wanted to be an actor really until uh I I remember I was probably 10 years old 9 10 years old and I watched um, Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly in the movie Anchors Away on PBS one day. And I was like, oh my God, that is what I love. I love Frank Sinatra. I want to be him and perform. So I didn't even really know, like, I want to be an actor. I just knew I wanted to be Frank, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra. <laughs> you know what I mean? And sure. so, and then as I was like progressing, I was still getting more into like kind of telling jokes and being performative. Um, and then my freshman year of high school, um, the my plan was to do I was in band I was going to do band I played saxophone and then I wanted to play soccer and I wasn't like a great soccer player but I enjoyed it I love sports um and I was like I'll I'll play and you know that's what I'll do in high school and 
my best friend uh, in high school was this guy named Larry Spertoli. And uh, he came, he was sleeping over my house one day and he was like, Hey, the, he had just tried out for the football team. And he was like, Hey, coach Han said that, uh, you know, we could still bring people to try out for the football team. And I was like, no, I'm too small. My freshman year of high school, I was five, two and 95 pounds. I was a tiny, tiny little human. Wow. And and he's like, no, no, it's going to be good. And my dad had played football and my brother played football. And so they were like, you got to play football. And I was like, I love football, but I think I'm going to get killed. But I went in and tried out. I did get killed. Like the, <laughs> once we started doing tackling drills, I was just getting blown up and just exploded. And I was like, this is not for me. Like I physically can't walk anymore. I was like, I love watching football, but I'm too small for this sport. And so I, I quit and which was hard for me because I don't like to quit anything. But I was like, I'm going to die if I keep playing football. And because I had quit the football team, but I'd gone to the tryouts for a couple of weeks, I missed the tryouts for soccer and I had nothing to do in the fall. And a friend of mine from band was like, you should try out for the play. And I was like, oh, sure, I guess I could do that. And it was uh, The Hobbit uh, was the first play that I did in high school. And I immediately was like, oh, these are my people. This is my tribe like this. I am I am an actor kid that I'm a theater kid through and through. So then I started um, obviously just going into the deep dive of, you know, Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis and Miss Saigon and Rent and, you know, and I was a total, you know, 90s theater kid. And um, but I will say, while I loved musicals and I loved, you know, renting musical CDs from the library and stuff, my dream really was always to do a sitcom. I, I loved TV sitcoms most of, of anything. And so that's what's really, really kind of cool is that while Broadway was definitely a dream of mine and a huge like career checklist, you know, kind of thing, doing a sitcom really was always my 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 deepest dream of what I wanted to do. And it sort of proves, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell, like 10,000 hours, the 10,000 hours that you spent watching TV nonstop as a kid yeah, yeah. actually is all a write off now. Your oh, parents could pay 100%. off the electricity bill for all those years, yes. write it off because it was research for this Absolutely. thing that you, you know, you, you mastered and, and continue to learn from and get joy with, but, but you can say that like that was your dream and yes it's cool to be on broadway but to be a broadway singer to have the chops not to like to sing but to be able to to sing every show you do you are like it's called shrek you play shrek do you know what i mean school of rock you play school like it's like you're always <laughs> yeah. the lead so uh, you said you played sax, so mm -hmm. I guess you have great lung power, but tell me like <laughs> the singing part, like that's a phenomenal voice that you're carrying in your body. You. So when did that become known to you? Well, I appreciate that uh, very much. I, I will say this and I, this sounds, I don't know, sounds shitty. I, I don't like saying it, but I never took voice lessons. I never like studied with anybody when I was younger. The first real voice lesson that I took was with Joan later once I was doing School of Rock because the the show like you had to put me with her and she's like the preeminent voice teacher in the yes. world and I was like why am I starting at this level <laughs> you know what I mean so I I will say I was always I was in like church choir and stuff and my mom was a piano teacher and was very musical my mom and my grandmother I never knew my grandmother because she passed away before I was born but she was also very musical she played the flute and piccolo in a symphony orchestra um, and then my mom played flute and piccolo in that same orchestra and gave piano lessons 
And so I was, I, there was always music in the house. My mom was always like talking to me about music. And I, I feel like I could read music at a very young age and then like singing in church choir and stuff like that. So I was, I was always around it, but I think I was essentially sort of self-taught just by listening to stuff and, you know, listening to and a mimicking. lot of Sinatra and mimicking right. and, yeah. and, you know, and then eventually, and when I went to college, I was just an acting major. We didn't have musical theater as a major. So I wasn't taking any musical classes in college. It really wasn't until, uh, you know, I got to New York and once I was, you know, doing School of Rock because that show is so vocally challenging. They had us going to, you know, to Joan and she like told me these things that I was like, oh yeah, oh gosh, oh, that helps so much. And I was like, if I had known this years ago, oh, I could have saved myself. Yeah, I could have saved myself so much stress. Yeah. So you naturally had the ability to kind of sustain it eight shows a week and then you learned craft from yeah. Joan and others yeah, along I think the way. I think if anything, what I learned, one of the things I learned from Joan is I think I had a natural ability to be loud and fill a room, very Ethel Merman, sort of like mm -hmm. I can be big and broad. I never felt fatigue from my voice. But what Joan taught me was that like you can maybe you might be able to use that much air and lung power and, you know, all that stuff, but you don't have to. And so if you can if you can make the same sound with a lot less effort then we should be doing that so that we can protect the voice. And so that was the main thing that she taught me was how to really have, like you said, more, more craft and technique in protecting my voice, but still giving a good sound. So Shrek, you did the tour and then yeah. that led to you auditioning to replace Alex in school of rock. Yeah. They were a little bit, uh, they were a little bit further apart. So basically I had joined my first Broadway show was Shrek and I, w I came in as a medical leave replacement, um, for, uh, somebody who was going to be out for 12 weeks, one of the three little pigs and Papa Ogre. And so I had like my Broadway credit now and I was like on Broadway. And that was your Broadway debut. Yes. Correct. Okay. And that was in 2010, 2009 or 10, something like that. Okay. And, um, and so I just thought I was going to be in the show for about like 10, 12 weeks. It ended up being a little bit longer than that. And then I had, and then I was like out of the show for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And then I came back in when Brian Darcy James left, when he was done, uh, Ben Crawford, who was the standby became Shrek. And then they hired me to be the standby. So then I was the standby for Shrek for the last like 10 weeks of its run. Um, and then we had auditions for the tour and then I got cast as Shrek for the tour and then did that tour and then moved to LA and then did more kind of like TV stuff for a few years, went back to, uh, New York to do Peter and the star catcher, uh, on Broadway for like eight months while I was doing Peter and the star catcher in New York. I sent a video audition for, uh, Kirsty or the show that eventually became Kirsty went to do Kirsty. When Kirsty was done, that's when I got the audition to come back to do School of Rock. So yeah, by the way, many times. Kirsty, uh, that you were on, I was thinking about because I, Kristen Chenoweth is obviously my, yeah. your girlfriend on yeah. the show <laughs> yes. um, and, and my sister in life. And just thinking about the cast for that show, like Cloris Leachman, yeah. uh, Michael Richards. Yeah. Rhea Perlman. Rhea Perlman. George you, went. George uh, went. Like Travolta was on it for an episode. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was not Jason Alexander. It was, uh, it was, as I said to you, you know, doing a sitcom was my dream. So getting to be a lead in a show, I was already like this, I've made it. This is like the top yeah. of the mountain. And then on top of that, to be working 
truly with i mean people throw around the word legend a lot but like those people really were legends of yeah. the form of sitcom of multicam sitcom and to like learn from them and just be around them and have them sort of take me under their wing and really be you know proud of me and one of the things that i thought was really cool was whenever we were doing press for kirsty obviously kirsty michael richards and Rhea perlman as we said are huge legends and I was, I was not, I was a complete unknown. And, but whenever we did press, it was very important to all three of them, but especially Kirsty, to like, make sure that whenever they said, and here's the stars of our show, that they would say me as well. She was always like, it's the four of us. We are making a show together. It's not just the three of us. Like, and so I, I just thought that was really cool. When you auditioned for that show, I mean, I know that's a while ago now, but did you also sort of do the quote unquote I mean, she was playing your 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 mother um, yeah. in the show. There are no spoil alerts. This is a yeah. long time ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, she had given uh, Eric's character up for adoption, and then they are reunited later. Yeah. Um, did you have to read with her? Were they yeah. looking for chemistry? Yes, we did do a chemistry read for that as well. Um, that was another that that audition story is a little wild in that I was doing uh, Peter and Starcatcher at the time. I sent in a tape that they liked and then they gave me some notes. I sent a second tape with the notes that they gave me and then they called. They're like, all right, we want you to fly to LA to test. But I was like in the middle of a run of a show. And so I had to like get clearance from uh, Starcatcher to give me one day off. They gave me the Friday off. So I took the red eye on Thursday night right after the show. I went directly from the Brooks Atkinson Theater to JFK, took the red eye to LA, landed they gave me they drove me to a dressing room so that I could take a shower I took a shower and changed and like on the lot um in this little dressing room uh I signed all my paperwork because the one thing that a lot of people I and I love to tell people this because it, it blows their mind people don't realize when you're auditioning for a tv show when it's down to a final test for network tests sometimes you'll hear people talk about and, and it's basically the last you know two three four actors that are up for a role and all of those actors have all signed a contract saying that they got the role and this is what they're going to be paid. So you do all your negotiating before you actually have the job, which is seemingly kind of backwards. But it it puts so much more pressure on that audition because, you know, the money that you could be making and, you know, like how long of a contract that is and that you can't help but have that kind of way way on your head a little bit. Um, so basically, I, I got I landed, took a shower signed my paperwork Signed the paperwork got and then stood you know with like three or four other guys we all went in and read with Kirsty, and then they came out and usually this would be over like a process of a couple days but because i was only there for a day they were kind of jamming it uh they were like out of the four of us they asked two of the guys to leave they're like all right it's not going to be you guys sorry you can go home but i was still in the mix and i was like okay here we go and then uh they had us come back in and do another scene with Kirsty. Um, I felt like it went well. I walked out. I was walking just from the little bungalow across the little street on the studio lot to my dressing room. By the time I got to my dressing room that was, you know, 200 yards away, um, Kirsty and Marco Panette, the uh, uh, creator and showrunner, called me and they're like, is this the star of Giant Baby? Because at the time it was called Giant Baby. And I was like, I don't know, is it? And they're like, you got the fucking job. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, 
really? And they're like, yeah. And then I, you know, I was in this dressing room by myself in Los Angeles and I like called my wife and we cried and got excited. I took a cab from the uh, lot to my agent's office, had a glass of champagne, took a cab from my agent's office to the airport, flew back for the matinee on Saturday, <laughs> Saturday at 11 at, uh, for Peter and the Starcatcher. And then finished up the run there. That is incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. Uh, that doesn't happen that often. <laughs> no. That that you know a role like that. There, you know, we talk so much about this. The reason that doesn't always happen is that as brilliant as you were, they might have each had a friend that mm. was really talented. Totally. Right. Like like for to have so, be someone with zero connection to anyone yeah. in the room, to, to anything about the project, it's like, that's sort of the miracle. It's because you don't just have to be brilliant and talented and all of those things. Like you have to be more of that than any of the hundred people they already know, worked with, love, totally. married to, gave yes. birth to. Like it's <laughs> yes. so bananas yeah. that it actually can happen. And then that was that straight to series or did you guys do a pilot? And then, no, we, yeah, we did a pilot uh, in December. Um, this, I shouldn't even bring up the story because it's kind of a downer, but it just came <laughs> into my mind. Um, we, we shot the pilot uh, in December, like mid December in 2000. And geez, I don't even know what year that was. It's, uh, it's nine 2009 I think 2007 some somewhere in there um I remember it was it was the day of the Sandy Hook shooting and it was the day we were shooting the pilot and you know at that point I didn't have my son but my daughter was born and I mean that day was so tragic for everyone but I do think the people that were parents really like were just so deeply affected by it and i remember you know it was like the day we had been rehearsing all week but like that friday we were shooting the pilot the tape and yeah. yeah and and my i was like you know you have like a three or four hour break before you actually go into filming and my wife was there and i was just like crying and like could not control myself and she was like you have to turn off the tv like you have to this is a big night for you and all of that sadness is still going to be there tomorrow, but you, your job is to like be funny and be light and be joyful and buoyant to people's spirits. And you know, all the audience that's coming tonight, they all know what happened. And if you can be like funny and bring joy to their hearts so that everybody can forget about it for a couple hours, then that's a, a noble thing to do. So, but it was yeah. hard. It was yeah, hard to do. I'm sure. Um, so I just want to circle back to this moment for you, um, which is, the thing about this show that's really interesting, aside from the conceptual stuff, which is so smart. So there's a multi-cam show and a single cam show within the same hour. Yeah. And and you sort of see um, Annie's character. Uh, we get to see her inner monologue, right? We get to see what happens. Is, is the part of the show that you're in, is that meant to be a sitcom? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not but but it's not meant to be a sitcom like everybody loves Raymond. We're not pretending that you're a sitcom that everyone knows is a sitcom. Correct. I I think the way to think about it, it cuz some people have been wondering they're like, "Well, is it 
you know, is it like an actual like filmed TV show that she's like walking in and out of? Or it's not that it really is just a sense, a different lens is a, a good mm -hmm. way to think about it, is that, you know, when she is with her husband and the men in her life, um, my wife, actually, I'm talking a lot about my wife, but she's amazing. So good. She, she We've knows. already said she's a renaissance <laughs> yeah, woman. Absolutely. We've already described her as such. Yeah. She pointed out, and I always want to give her credit because I think it's really brilliant. She pointed out the difference is when it's the sitcom, she said, when women are around men or out in public or in the business world or whatever, I think all, or she said, she was like, I think all women have a sense of like, we have to perform up to expectations of what people expect of us right mm -hmm. and so i think that's sort of the idea of the sitcom world is whenever the character of allison played by annie murphy is in the sitcom world when she's with her husband or the men in her life that are not great she sort of has this sense of like oh we have to perform and everything is light and we just roll our eyes when things are bad we don't actually come back at somebody if they say something mean and we just keep it light right and so that's like why it works from her point of view i think from kevin's point of view he is someone who is always cheered on always has a, a crowd behind him being like yeah kevin you tell him you do it and if it's not real it's at least how he feels in his head you know he has a a unbridled sense of self-confidence that is uh, unwarranted, but is completely like he is rock solid in believing that he is the best at everything and in every every situation. And then as soon as he is removed from uh, Annie or Allison's, uh, you know, purview and around her space then it's the reality of what she's actually feeling and actually thinking and seeing and so that's why the show kind of switches format back and forth um and what's really cool is that both sides really inform each other and they're both totally real life it is the same world it's the same universe it's just a different lens of how the world is seen uh from for the audience's view well i have to say in in watching it you really bring to mind um, Jackie Gleason and all of these, you know, comedic greats who we look at the show now and we go, oh, I think that's domestic abuse, right? <laughs> right I mean, there, yeah. I mean, it, it was all light, um, but yeah. right, like if Alice Cramden walked out of the kitchen and with the camera followed her, we'd see what, what Annie Murphy is doing on your exactly. show. Exactly. I mean, it is really interesting and, and it's such a, a powerful message and a great moment. And I'm sure you guys all hope that, you know, if enough men watch it, I mean, it yeah. may that, you know, it, it is definitely a demographic that probably brings a lot of women to a show um, yeah. because of Annie's following, but I'm sure you hope a lot of men are watching it too. And I and do understanding I, that, the point. That's one of the things that I've, I've said in, in quite a few like interviews and stuff is I'm like, obviously the show is about female empowerment and women taking their stories back and, being in control of their lives and their narrative and that is the main point of our show and so obviously i do think that a lot of women will come to it they'll feel seen they'll feel heard they will be like yes this is awesome this is a show for me but i was uh, what i've always said is that i hope that men will watch it and will have a sort of reflective moment of being like oh shit i've I've behaved this way. Like I said, if Kevin was just this terrible guy, I was like, I hate my wife. She's stupid. And just was like terrible. Then men would watch it and be like, 
Well, I'm not like that. I would never say that to my wife. But if men watch some of the scenes and they go, oh, man, I've I've heard my wife talking to me and I've just ignored her while I'm working on whatever little project I'm doing and then seeing how that affects her it, it, with our show. I That's why I'm hoping that men will watch it and will have sort of a uh, uh, looking up to the mirror moment and being like, oh, shoot, I need to <laughs> I need to be better. Well, I was thinking about how you were saying before that you were bullied as a kid and Kevin's a bully, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether he knows it or not. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, he's, he's very lovable and in your hands and, and your talent, he really, you know, it's, that's what they hired you like you Thank found a balance of humanity and it's a sitcom world yes, so it's all that, slightly that, exaggerated yes because that's the thing is that it is it was important to me this is sort of going on that same track yeah. it was important to me that kevin that i as an actor had to fight for as many like lovable moments as i could get so that you felt conflicted as a viewer you know what I mean? If it was too on well, the Well, you nose. also had to understand why she married you to begin with. I exactly. mean, she was not a mail order bride. This is not right. someone who had a gun to her head. So right. in this world you guys have created, there had to be something adorable uh, about him yes, at some point an, in her life. An initial spark. And yeah. that's what I think I, I think that that Annie and I have been able to capture is that there are those just they're very fleeting, but there are little moments, a little look here or there that's like, oh. Yeah, they they love each other. They're not. They're probably not there anymore. I think Kevin still thinks every everything's fine and hunky dory, yeah. and there's no problems. But you know, you have to see something that there was an initial attraction. There was an initial reason that that he liked her and that she liked him enough to say, "Let's get married and you know, be together." So, how do you, as two actors who are you know seasoned, grown up professionals, playing people who one of you has? Um, fantasy about killing the other one um or or doing whatever she can to get out of this yeah, marriage yeah. as it were yeah. how do you guys find ways to stay you know connected to each other in a positive way um knowing what the the tone in the show's well I will kind of I, is i will say one of the things uh, obviously we don't talk to each other yeah we just don't <laughs> yeah. talk to each other we don't talk to each other yeah. <laughs> I will say part of, I think one thing that helped was the way that we filmed it is we would film all the multicam scenes for an episode over two or three days. And then the multicam people would be done for like two weeks while they did all the single cam stuff. So at least for Annie's point of view, she was able to sort of like be in one mindset and then turn it off and go to the other side. Um, right. And then for, for me, I, you know, it's not like I didn't read the single camera scripts because you want to like have as much information about your character as you can. You're like, I but I'm not really in them that much. So yeah, why would but, I read them? <laughs> but I think it's a little bit of both. There, there is yeah. a little bit of the old uh, actor I'm idea. Very like, busy. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Not me, not I'm, me. Not. Okay. Oh, there's my line. Okay. There's my line. Now I'll read it, right? <laughs> Let me get so, my highlighter. <laughs> there's a little bit of that. But there was a little bit of a conscious decision to be like, in, in Kevin's mind, he doesn't care about anything that happens outside or know any of that or know any of it or care. Right. It, it, it truly from his mind, it does not exist. He is one of those people that thinks that like the, his sphere of existence is just where he is. There is nothing yeah. beyond it. So I just yeah. tried to sort of ignore that as much as I could. Okay. So I have two questions for you before I let you do um, whatever your 
family is doing today to celebrate this <laughs> glorious day of birth of your daughter. Um, one is, I think about this a lot, having kids. I was not a, a young boy who was only 5'2 and 95 pounds <laughs> in my freshman year of high school. Um, and I have a son who's a freshman in high school, so I really understand how tiny that was yeah, for yeah. that for that time compared <laughs> yeah. to whatever the you know, the curve is that your yeah, pediatrician yeah. would measure you at. So now having an 11 year old who sounds like she is so good at being present, loving herself and navigating the world, but we can't control all the other people out there who mm-hmm. don't always appreciate what we find so uniquely beautiful about our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you talk as a human and as a parent when your kids come across not such nice kids? So having in the victim of it and come up with your coping mechanism that is now giving you a trailer on a studio, (laughs) but you didn't know that at the time, right? You didn't know you'd be on a lot with a, with a parking spot with your name on it. Right. Um, What, how do you, how do you talk to that? Well, I think one of the main things that I always say to her, it, whenever it could be, you know, luckily my daughter has not really dealt with any bullying yet, but she's dealt with even like, kids who are her age that are watching movies that we're not ready for her to watch or or talking about things or about whatever and we're like oh you're not there and you know sometimes or you know girls can be a little mean to each other starting to at this age and what I always say is I always say listen that person is acting out because something is going on in their life that is causing Mm -hmm. them to lash out in some way And I always try to say to my, especially my daughter, I'm like, you know, you are very blessed. We are in a a, a happy, healthy family. And, you know, you you have your, both your parents are here. You have a healthy sibling, you know, like you're very blessed and not everybody has this. And people that don't have things like that sometimes will lash out at people that seem like they have it all or that everything's going okay. And so I try to just tell her, you cannot take it personally if somebody is saying something rude. Like you have to just acknowledge that they're whatever they're going through is is causing them to act this way. Cause I, I truly believe that that all people are are good and are coming from a good place and have joy in their hearts initially. I know that the world can beat us down and can put situations that cause that joy to seem very far away at times. But um oh who's that? Look at that. It's joy calling. <laughs> it's my, I should, I thought I turned this off. Is my mom calling to wish my daughter a happy oh birthday, but she will God. have to call back she tomorrow. Just or, wait not a minute. tomorrow, later. Not tomorrow. Moments, we're moments <laughs> Let, away. Moments mom. away. Moments away. Moments away. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, I just tell her that you, your life is really good. And, and when people are being rude or terrible, just know that they're probably needing a hug. And so not that you have to like stay around somebody that's mistreating you, but I always tell, you know, one of the things I always say is I'm like, look, and my daughter to her credit is awesome at this. I always say, look for that kid that's sitting alone at the, you know, at the lunch table or at recess and, and just introduce yourself. That's all you got to do. And if they're, Mm -hmm. if, if it's not a connection, that's fine. But even sometimes just saying hello you know, my daughter was, 
she was she was the uh the class president of her school uh and she did such a great job of doing that while she was doing that of just like reaching out to those kids that seemed alone and bringing them in hey do you know this person come play with us and and i think that that's that kind of stems from that idea of bullying of like try to meet people before they get to a place of hurt and um and see if you can just brighten their day a little okay i mean your family you guys it's a good one <laughs> how beautiful okay before i let you go can you share a little known fact about eric peterson mm. um i okay that's sort of going off of what we were just talking about actually um one thing so i i talked about how i was you know i, I was kind of, I, here's the other thing that i want to i do want to qualify is i was definitely picked on and bullied as a kid but i do know that other people and kids have had it far worse than I ever did. So I don't want to make it out like, oh my gosh, my childhood was so hard. And like, I was constantly ridiculed. It was not that, but I definitely was teased. And one of the big things, the reasons that I was teased, not only was I small, um, but I have strabismus, which means that I can only see out of one eye at a time. So both of my eyes work, but in the brain, it's an issue really with your brain. You're just born with it. Uh, if, um, when I'm using my right eye, my left eye is just not engaged. It's like not turned on. If I'm using my left eye, my right eye is not turned on. So I don't really have depth perception, <laughs> which explains why I was never very good at baseball. Um, I loved baseball, but I, I was like, just couldn't hit the baseball. Um, and I only found this out when I was 17 years old. So I had obviously gone to many eye doctors as a child. Um, but they always thought it was just like um, a lazy eye. So I, I was basically full on cross-eyed until I was 18. And so not only was I really little, but I was like cross-eyed. And so I was like, and I have, you know, these rather large droopy eyes and I love them now and I've made a complete career out of them. So I would yeah, not change them for them. a world. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we thank those eyes. But as a child, I had these same big eyes and they were just right, on your eyes, teeny right? little head, yes. on my little tiny head. And so, you know, going through that was really hard. I had I had like major eye surgery when I was 18. I was it was the summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college where they basically, I won't get too graphic here. They basically like open up your eye like an eggshell and they cut some muscles that are holding the pupils and they tie some muscles together. And I had stitches on the inside of my eyeballs and stitches on the outside of my eyeballs for like three months. My eyes were blood red for a month. It was really intense, a very, like a wow. very intense. Um, and it's only that surgery was just a cosmetic surgery. It's not even to, because the it's really an issue with your brain is of how. So you still just see out of one eye at a time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, little known thing about me. That is a little known fact that <laughs> I certainly had no idea. There you um, go. Eric Peterson, thank you so much, so much for spending this time with me. Uh, what a joy. Uh, this is so much fun. I can't wait to see all the other things coming up along the pike. And um, happy birthday to your beautiful daughter. And I wish you a great day. Thank you, Lana. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out 
and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.